We all want to believe in something, but how far will we go to find meaning? From the executive producer of Friday Night Lights, Hulu's new original drama series The Path takes audiences inside the mysterious world of a controversial cult-like movement. Starring Aaron Paul, Michelle Monaghan, and Hugh Dancy, and hailed by The Hollywood Reporter as impressive and riveting, The Path takes an in-depth look at the gravitational pull of belief and what it means to choose between the life we live and the life we want. The Path. Now streaming, new episodes of Wednesdays, only on Hulu. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the deputy editor and chief film critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, the editor-at-large at IndieWire, and we promise you we will not spend most of this podcast episode talking about Batman versus Superman because we've certainly spent a lot of time on that, but there is a bigger picture here that we need to scrutinize, and that's news that has circulated over the past week in relation to Warner Brothers, which released that movie, and their strategy, which supposedly is to, re- to release fewer homegrown films, to have more temples, and to just kind of double down on exactly the kind of movie that we've been saying is so awful the last two weeks. So, first of all, we should look at exactly how this news got out there because there was a story by Kim Masters and The Hollywood Reporter reporting that sources are saying this is happening. The studio is not saying it's happening. But what do we make of the assessment that the studio is really shifting to more tentpoles, especially after making a temple that everybody said was pretty bad? Yeah, and so what we're looking at is an industry trend. And what's interesting about Warner Brothers is that it's the last of the studios really that is invested in doing such a large number of movies. And it seems to be falling into the same pattern that other studios have already adopted, which is go for the franchises, go for the big play, go for the easy sell, go for the event movie, the temple, and, and reduce the number of mid-range movies, other kinds of movies, original content. And the reason, you know, that I keep talking about the two-hour movie being in danger is that, you know, if you put all your money on selling something that hasn't been pre-sold or proven in another medium, you are taking a huge risk as a major studio. And so even though it looks like Batman vs. Superman is certainly based on the numbers so far, it could be beat out by Deadpool, for Christ's sake, (laughs) you know? I mean, that's insane. Yeah, Um, which is a much more interesting movie that, I mean, if you're going to make a temple, at least try to break the mold a little bit. No, but that wasn't, I said this before, it wasn't, on some level, Warner Brothers had to do a lot. And did they recreate the the Marvel, uh, you know, universe uh, and, and reach the level of that kind of success and model? No. And I've said it before, they don't have Kevin Feige. It's not going to happen. Are they going to continue to working with Zack Snyder, who's in charge of the next two Justice League movies? Yes, he's already underway. They're not going to pull it away from him. The overall picture that that is painted of of Warner Brothers that I find sort of fascinating is is that I don't... It's so obvious to me that the people who are in charge of running production over there, you know, whether it starts at, 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 at Sujihara and, and moves on to Greg Silverman, um, who's been the head of production since Robinov left, you know, you don't make this many bad movies, it seems to me. I mean, it's really the movies themselves that have disappointed. It's the sign of a weak studio that doesn't have people who are really smart and really know how to fix a movie, how to assess 
what's wrong with the movie, to how to, I think they have excellent marketing. I think run by Sue Kroll. I think their apparatus as far as distribution and marketing is superb. It's clearly who is in charge of making sure that the movies turn out as well as they possibly could. And if Batman versus Superman is the best they could do with all their resources, everything at their disposal, there's something wrong. Well, is that really what's wrong? Or is, is what's wrong just in general this, this assumption that these are the kinds of movies that a studio needs to double down on. I mean, I don't want to see more of these things. And I know that I'm Eric, an you are a film critic. I knew I, I could never predict that. But to tell people not to do this. But, 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 the, but the, the, there, there are so many economic reasons why the studios are invested in, in this kind of, of... Look, to me, what really makes it bad, and there's some articles out there about this today that, that, that I agree with 100%, what really makes this bad is the, the degree to which it is starving the ecosystem that is support, supposed to grow new talent and rise up and, and give them opportunities to learn how to make films and become better at their craft. And if you don't have Chris Nolan uh, you know, doing insomnia before he does Batman, he may not know how to do Batman. And and so you 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 really see this the, the the whole thing is is wrong for that reason. They should be making more movies, not I understand why they have to make the franchise movies. I understand it too. My my question is if if could the franchise movies be better in a way that would help their business model? It, it almost seems like the reason why I like Deadpool and why I thought that that was just a much more exciting kind of possibility is because it was using the idea of a franchise to at least surprise people, catch them off guard, and maybe there's something there, I mean, beyond just making more R-rated movies, for example. It just seems to me like the, the notion that this is where their resources need to be spent rather than trying to figure out how to make better tent poles is just sort of a disconnect. And even if I'm in an echo chamber or in a corner, it's just the film critic who's sort of waving the flag of eccentricity. I get it. But at the same time, I think that there is some kind of clamoring for quality. You can't completely dismiss that. And this strategy seems to me like it has absolutely nothing to do with that agenda. And at some point, that has to matter, right? It has to matter. The studio does need to think about making better movies. Look, when Marvel made Iron Man, they threw out the rule book and they totally went for broke and Favreau and Downey and all the other people had a blast and they just went for it. When they made the sequel, they started to think about action figures and merchandising and licensing and all the other movies that were going to come down the pie. That's the worst Marvel movie they've made so far. And, and I, think that, I think that that's the problem with Batman versus Superman, a movie like that. The idea of a movie like that, taking these two huge, iconic superheroes who've existed for you know, over 75 years and, and, and make them um, you know, keep true to the different rules of, of who they are and, and try to set up an entire universe. So they've done that. They've set up the universe. The question is you know, whether any of the subsequent <laughs> movies are going to be any good. And you and I are probably going to be disappointed in them. Mm -hmm. um, the, I'm arguing, and, and that's part of what this article was about, uh, that the sources were saying they're not going to be making any more, uh, you know, many more of those mid-range movies, and they're going to cut back on the number of movies they made. And folks 
focus solely on the tent poles, as if it is a corporate strategy that they're better off making Batman versus Superman better than in wasting their energy on a bunch of smaller movies that won't yield returns. Well, and I wonder if, it, let's say that that's true, is this something that other studios are going to look at and start to you know, double down on because... They've already done it. So in They've that already sense, done it. It's already done. I mean, that's what Disney is. That's what Fox is. That's what Sony is. I mean, that's what all of this is about. So that, <laughs> yeah. but that leads it's, to a bigger question. I mean, is this some? They've kind already of... done it. It's Univer Universal would be the exception. Universal under Donna Langley, totally more diverse, totally more original comedies, more movies directed by women like the Amy Schumer. Uh, I mean, not you know, written at least by Amy Schumer. Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, directed by a woman. Uh, you know, they're they're going, you know, out of straight out of Compton. You know, they're going for a lot of var variety because they don't have as many tent poles to rely on. They're forced to, to do that, and Paramount has cut back to a slim, slim version of its former self. And yet, I, one of the things that that I think about here, not to get all big short on you, but is there some sort of bubble being created here with Universal being the anomaly? Almost like when the studio made Cleopatra, and, and there was just uh, all these things could start bombing one after another, right? I mean, they have one... it set up in such a way. And I remember reading this article years ago, which I totally agreed with. I think it was in the Wall Street Journal. It said basically that if the studios were forced to only use their own money to make movies. They might make movies very differently, and 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 that that was an interesting observation. They they cover themselves all the time. They it's very rare that a any single movie is paid for entirely by the studio. They 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 get other investors. They partner with other companies. They they make sure that they're not exposed. That's part of how they stretch their their annual budgets farther. I was just thinking about all this recently because there was this really fascinating piece that quoted Paul Greengrass is talking about how all these young filmmakers are being screwed over by the industry. Essentially, That's the one I was referring to, yeah, actually. And, and, and essentially that, you know, that concept of the, you know, that there is no middle class for film is really confirmed by what we're discussing here and that you know, what the middle class has become is TV. You know, the TV... That's correct. Sense, That's mean, exactly what's happened. It's not only that it's a healthier industry, it's that it's actually better for people who, who want some element of creative freedom or who are putting quality ahead of, you know, commercial gain and so forth. Which what's is, interesting uh, about TV, though, is that the writer is king, so that the executive producer and the showrunner are the ones who are, who are calling the shots. Although I did see The Night Manager this week, which is coming up uh, on AMC. It's a British series that was already a hit in Britain. Written, and it's based on the John Le Carre book, and it's with Tom Hiddleston and Hugh Laurie, sort of as two opponents. Um, and it's uh, directed by Suzanne Beer, the the uh, Danish Oscar-winning director of A Better right. World, who, in the Soderbergh model, got to direct all six episodes. So it's a limited series, and shot it like a six-hour movie. Right. Uh, all at once. And th th this is something that's increasingly solidifying as one possibility, an alternative to reaching a larger audience and still essentially working as a filmmaker. I looked at that deal that you were writing about earlier this week with Weinstein companies, basically essentially a three-picture deal with Antoine Fuqua, but for TV. 
which they never would have done a couple of years back. No, That's no, no, no. And Antoine Fuqua himself, who's extremely successful in Hollywood as a filmmaker, he would that's a big, that. you know, yeah. that's a big giveaway that even he sees. But that's the other thing. You can make more money in TV. If you're an executive producer, uh, now, hopefully Antoine Fuqua on a big Hollywood studio feature would get big money. He should. But the... Uh, the, uh, the truth, you know, he's got Magnificent Seven coming up. He did Southpaw, which did very well uh, back in the day. He did Training Day. He's a top-level, that's the thing. He's a top-level commercial Hollywood director going into TV. And why would you do that? You would do that to have more control and to have uh, a better shot at good quality and, and not having to play by the studio uh, very narrow-casted, commercial rules at this point yeah you know i mean i i I don't feel like film as a medium is threatened here i mean i'm excited to go see the unorthodox non-fiction films and art of the real showcase at lincoln center this weekend but and those things are fine but it does seem like when we're talking about conventional narrative dramas for example this is where they now live i mean the best drama i've seen this year was american crime story full stop I, I just I mean, imagine that as a movie right now. I just I just can't picture it. Who would get behind that unless it was? Well, in- Suzanne Beer pointed out that the Night Manager had been developed as a movie for years with many different iterations. One of them would have had Brad Pitt in it, right? And they couldn't crack it as a two-hour movie. And I think the same is true of People versus O.J. Simpson, which I also loved and you know and totally you know inhaled. I, I was thrilled by it's it. It's great. Um, a little soapy in certain. It's going to be a total Emmy contender in every way. You know, yeah. from Courtney Vance to uh, uh, John. I'm curious. I mean, I, I see Courtney Vance and Sarah Paulson as being the ones who yeah. get nominated. John Travolta, who is so eye catching. Um, and so riveting no, at the same happening. time that you could argue that he was terrible. <laughs> uh, he's ridiculous. But he was playing a certain, I mean, there's a certain campy element to the movie. And it's a also the Snidely because, Whiplash but, version you know, of Bob Shapiro. Yeah, but you know what I liked about that, that show as a whole? And, and, I, and I was thinking about this a few days ago as, I, as it's sort of building up to this climax. You know where it's going. And so it's sort of playing with your awareness of that. There's, they use these split screens to show everybody's watching that definitive moment that most of us remember from 20 years ago, but also there, there's something about... How old of, were you, Eric? <laughs> let's not get into that. We all have different access points to this memory. But, I mean, the, the point is I was alive. And, and maybe there's... You were, there, a mere, you were a mere child. <laughs> this mere child was very much impacted by this story because it, there was so much ambiguity to it, and everybody had a different way into it. And I think the show taps into that really well. But also it, it, what it does is it, it plays with your awareness of certain things. The glove-won't-fit line, for example, is sort of... There's a foreshadowing element there. But I, what, I, what I liked about that also is that in the context of the show, you never know where it's going to go because there's so much time to explore different sides of the story. So sometimes it gets really serious, and sometimes it does veer into camp or soap opera territory, and sometimes it's kind of funny. So you know, being able to experiment with tone like that also feels like something that TV is liberating certain filmmakers to do in a way that you, you can't do with films on this level. You know, to make That's things my outside the system. aspect of that show, which is that they took some chances with that, and we did we did a story uh, with the writers, uh, Karaszewski and Alexander, um, 
working, they were working on the development end of the thing. They were working with Nita Jacobson and Brad Simpson, who were some of the best producers in Hollywood behind the Hunger Games, among other things. And, and they, they were, and then they brought in Ryan Murphy because Jacobson and, and, and Simpson had never done TV before. So you have the guy behind Glee who knows how to run a show, who knows how to get the trains to run on time. But, he all, but they all managed to come up with this extraordinary tone, which they started straight and then they moved slowly into this sort of meta awareness of, of, of how this story was playing out. And, and it had a romance in it. Of Who sorts, knew, of right? sorts, yes. There's a lot of speculation to be done there. I also liked how just the, the show kind of developed through word of mouth, which is generally a term that you hear thrown around in the film world, word of mouth True. being crucial for certain kinds of movies released on a certain scale. The specialty films really need word of mouth to go from the first weekend to the second weekend and so on. This did this over the course of certain episodes, building to the climax. I don't remember ever seeing that before, I mean, there probably are precedents for certain shows like Dallas or something like that. But as a miniseries that by the third or fourth episode, more and more audiences were coming on board for this very limited experience. And that, that just really tells you we're in a different era right now. And then the smaller kinds of more experimental movies that are out there, they're doing something so fundamentally different, they're not even threatened. And I, I really like that to some degree, the studios can have their fun with whatever is going on in the tentpole arena. I hope they make them better, but it's kind of nice to see that TV is allowing for some experimentation with more conventional stories, and then other folks can do things in different kinds of ways outside of all of that. Doubling back, though... Part of what happens on a show like this, and this is why I think it's important that all people who are in the so-called movie business, which is really, I mean, the truth of the matter, Eric, as, as, you're, as we're discussing this, is that most people who work in Hollywood, in show business, in some form of video entertainment, are doing both, if they can. They're doing TV and movies. They're moving back and forth. It's become totally fluid. But, but the people who do movies who don't pay attention to TV are missing a lot, because it's where the breakout stars are coming and Sterling K. Brown is totally the breakout star of uh, of that of that series. Yeah, I mean, but the question is: so Sterling K. Brown is a breakout. Does that mean now he's going to be, you know, a movie star, or is I'd now love then, to see it happen? Well, but it, but the question is now, you know, based on what we're talking about, is that the natural next step, or does this person continue to be a TV star because TV is where it's at? Is that the healthier arena to stay in now? I mean, the, the, with these kinds the, of parents, the way these people do it is, if they can get a series, they get a series, and if they can work on their hiatus, they do a couple of movies. And the way movies are being made now, for the most part, leaving the studios and those franchises behind, we are now talking about a wide range of very micro-budget to mid-budget, often financed overseas, independently uh, raised movies. That, that these people could, you know, someone like, I, I interviewed Ethan Hawke recently uh, for Born to be Blue. Someone like Ethan Hawke used to make three movies a year that took a long time to shoot. They were very expensive, you know, it took a long time to prep and shoot and finish them. Now he does more like four or five that take four to five weeks to shoot that cost a lot less that are in a wider range of genres and, and come from different places. And so that's the world these people live in now. But doubling back for a second, there's this, the, the metrics are different and I think that's worth looking at as well. The way that TV success is measured is fundamentally different from movies and we spent a lot of 
time in the last few weeks talking about, you know, box office for Batman versus Superman. What does it mean exactly? And now, you know, people are saying, oh, the boss is going to do really well this weekend. Is that going to threaten Batman versus Superman? Well, maybe, maybe not. But Well, it's the, the third time. weekend. So I'd like to see, even though it got terrible reviews, I think the Metacritic numbers are just, you know, like really bad. Um I'd like to see Melissa McCarthy kick ass this weekend. I, I mean, I, I would be okay. Here, here's star. the thing about that movie. What, what I, from what I, my take on it is that it's funny enough to work for a lot of people. The trailer is um, very funny. I look it, at the trailer. I still haven't seen the movie she is for a, whatever reason yeah, because I mean, her husband directed it, and he's not a very good director. No, I mean, and there, there. It's almost like the material is beneath her. The last one he did was awful. Tam, well, Tammy was going for a different tone. I mean, this is definitely a broader comedy. She's a great slapstick artist, I think. And when she gets collapsed up into the bed and bounces off the wall, that's the stuff McCarthy's so great at. Well, there's a there's a great scene that plays out where she's wearing this like. Uh, mouse guard basically and can't speak clearly but keeps talking the scene just goes on and on and uh, it's just like some really great physical comedy in there that I think works on its own terms the movie as a whole doesn't hold up but similar in some ways to, to the way Batman versus Superman had this kind of sense of you know audiences will go to this movie they, they don't expect to be blown away they just expect something that the movie needs to deliver on a very almost like a bottom line kind of expectation I think this movie gets away with that and so it's going to do well box office wise uh, you know cause she people she's appealing to people but I also think it's you know I don't know what the cinema score will be I think people generally are going to be satisfied with this movie because they're, they're getting what they expect out of it and the trailer gives you a good sense of what that is yeah, so. basically, uh, she's been critic-proof all along. All of her movies have opened really well, and, and she it doesn't matter how bad the reviews are, so I don't expect this to be any different. Yeah, so in terms of all that kind of stuff, it does still seem like uh, Batman vs. Superman has some staying power, but exactly how much longer it can keep this up is an open question. I mean, the drop-off has already been pretty significant since that those first couple of numbers, so... You know, if this was a TV show, people would be losing interest pretty quickly. I describe. I think uh, Tom Brueggemann in his box office preview today, uh, you know, mentioned that it was uh, declining uh, precipitously, and and that's that's the that's the deal. I mean, which brings up that whole other question of of you know. I'm going to be going to CinemaCon ne next week and, and talking about the screening room and, and talking about the, the question of, you know, when a movie like that reaches its natural conclusion after four weeks or five weeks or six weeks or something, do, do, do they really have to hold off 90 days before it can go to the audience, you know? It's, a, it's really, that's the biggest question. The biggest question facing the industry is how to make that transition from a natural theater life to home entertainment. Well, because for most people, it's so organic now. I mean, even even as some, somebody like myself, I mean, I, I know what windowing is more or less. I'm familiar with that world, and yet it's very fluid for me how I watch things when I go to a screening or I watch things at, at home on my Apple TV. I mean, I, you have to think about how viewers have already sort of automatically learned how to find things in different ways. And, and they know, even if they wouldn't call it, you know, a 90-day window, they know that certain things will be available to them at home at a certain point in time, and they're more comfortable with waiting. And so that waiting game is something that you can't take lightly anymore. You can't assume that you can manipulate people into going to a theater so easily. In fact, there's almost an argument to be made that only certain kinds of movies belong in theaters, 
ones that will play well in those contexts. That uh, you know, De, De Niro was uh, doing some press for the Tribeca Film Festival, uh, and he said that he only the only movies he really feels like he needs to see in a theater are comedies, so he can hear people laugh. Which I thought was a really interesting observation. That's outrageous that he would say that. I don't agree with that at all. Well, I mean, but it's I, a I unique think that observation. Should play in theaters, and I think the reason movies should play in theaters is that they should be um, able to be branded, that they should be able to be reviewed and and build word of mouth and build an identity, and then go. I really don't believe in day and date. I really don't believe well, in day premium, and date is the premium, premium exposure before the. I believe that I believe very strongly that movies should be in theaters first and then go to home video. But and any you know platform whatever. But I actually think they should be able to do that sooner than the ninety day window. That they that the theaters should have a natural chance at it, and then when it's done, it's done, and they should move on. I mean, day and date is a very impractical thing when you really scrutinize what it means, but at the same time, it's the, the theatrical experience needs to have an additional incentive to it. I mean, this week we got news that the Alamo Draft House opened in New York, right? Or it's coming in the summer, finally, to Brooklyn. We've got the Metro Graph. It's, there, there's almost this like new era of great uh, independent movie theaters in New York, and to me, those folks are doing more to kind of explain the value of a movie theater than anybody else. And if something is there for a week or so, or two weeks or something like that, people will go because there's something you trust the brand, you want the good experience, people feel like they want to come back. That has more to do with just the overall kind of like communal energy of the movie theater experience. Exactly. And that's that that seems to be like the actual paradigm that needs to be driving these things. It's it's harder to imagine the multiplexes keeping tabs on those sort of changes because it's a much bigger model that you have to What's interesting about the multiplexes is as there are fewer movies being produced and released, there's more room in the multiplexes if Batman versus Superman isn't opening that weekend for the indies to play the multiplexes, which is what was supposed to happen all along. And what you had was that the multiplexes would be so selfish and greedy about going for the biggest buck that they could achieve on any weekend, and they would squeeze out the indies and they would just go for, for the biggest uh, uh, bang they could get. Now it's, there's more room for, for the indies to maneuver. Yeah, maneuver or just uh, you know, narrow cast, essentially. The ability to just be more nimble is, seems to be a, an asset now in this marketplace. I mean, I'm just looking at a headline right now in Variety about how the Spider-Man reboot is going to include additional Marvel characters, and I almost feel like these news stories at this point are Mad Libs. Like, you can just insert, you know, X Studio is going to do Y with this franchise or whatever, but when you have a movie that's not like anything else out there, you can come up with a completely original strategy for getting in front of audiences, and those audiences, if they get what they want, will end up being part of that release strategy in a different kind of way. And well, so, I would say something like A24 has been very good at, uh, and the word nimble does apply to them, uh, at figuring that magic sweet spot where something is new and something is, is going to catch hold. Um, but the risk when you have something new that doesn't catch hold is that no one ever sees it ever. <laughs> But you know and what? That's, and that's and also 
how, who has the wit and the energy and the um, perspicacity to sort of recognize when you can turn something into something that becomes a, a must-see? So many movies just go straight to VOD or just get lost yeah. and, and never have that opportunity. But you know what? I mean, first of all, you mentioned risk. I mean, that's what makes it worthwhile for most people. I mean, if there wasn't risk, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a compelling thing to do with your time from an industry standpoint. And I realize you can't stake a big studio model on something like that. But to some degree, I think that's why it makes the indies. It gives them the upper hand. And also, you know, the people who are involved in doing these kinds of movies, if you look at the different kinds of personalities driving these companies, there's a need to innovate in order to be a part of whatever the next paradigm is going to be here, you have to be flexible. And since these movies demand that, you have it forces you to figure out what the next stage in the marketplace is. So those companies, in some ways, you really have to look at what they're doing with their titles and understand where movies are headed. I mean, what is the future of cinema? It's not whatever the next temple is going to be, even if we have, you know, another 100 Marvel movies over the next 50 years. And, you, and, you know. could argue that if you're looking for huge, innovative breakthroughs in how movies are made, that someone like James Cameron could be counted upon to deliver that. That yeah. you could argue. Yeah, well, but you know, the, that's or Peter the, Jackson. And, or, and these guys are, are of a certain age and, and generation, and they've achieved an auteur level status. I don't know if that's sort of an anomaly now or something to that effect, but as long as they keep making movies, I guess we can argue that movies on that scale still have a shot. Little sure. by little, they won't be around anymore. So let's see what. Oh, you know, someone they, else will be <laughs> will be doing it instead. Oh, you know, they'll go to TV or something. In any case, uh, no, no. Say that. Let let us at least grant that in an ideal world, someone like Jim Cameron is going to give us a reason to go to the movies, and that's the reason that the studios are counting on those kinds of events. Well, your vote of confidence in, in, in the, the future for the, the studio system is much stronger than mine because I kind of wanted to see them all collapse. No, so. I argue <laughs> that they're doing some things well and other things really, really badly. I'm upset about I'm worried about it too. I think they're killing. I think they're killing the movies by not making uh, opportunities for younger filmmakers to learn how, how to make films. Oh, I good. think that's, that's a terrible thing. Good, so we, we can agree that things are not, not super great in that arena, but uh, you know the, the next couple of years are going to be noteworthy in that respect to see how some of these strategies play out. In any case, we can actually shift gears to, to not talk about these kinds of things soon enough. I'll be heading into Tribeca Film Festival mode next week. You're going to CinemaCon. So, we so can we'll really, compare notes. Exactly. <laughs> Very different worlds, which speaks to our different sensibilities and, and always yields a good conversation. So until then, Anne, uh, enjoy your weekend. You too, dude.